Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. In this episode, Eric Calderwood of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign speaks about his recently published book, Colonial Al-Andalus, Spain and the Making of Modern Moroccan Culture, Harvard University Press, 2018. Professor Calderwood offers an overview of his book and also reflects on how the time he spent in Morocco, especially in Tetuan, shaped its, his research topic and his understanding of Moroccan history and literature. Hello. Salam alaikum. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I want to welcome you to the American Legation. I see some familiar faces, many familiar faces and many new faces. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're doing something a little bit experimental uh, tonight, so I want to explain before. Uh, we'll have our talk in English, and we have a volunteer with Eric Calderwood, and then we have a volunteer interpretation student from the King Fahad School of Translation who will give a summary so before we get to the questions and answers, just so you know, there'll be a brief summary of what Eric has said in Arabic, because we'd like to see if this works, then when, in the future when we do talks in English, we'll have So I want to welcome you again to the legation. I think for those of you who are new here, um, welcome to the only U.S. historic monument located outside of the United States. And as of two years, we also are on the Morocco's list of historic historic, uh, places. So we're a monument in two countries. We have uh, the museum, and you're welcome to visit the museum now, uh, not now, but after the um, talk, please visit the museum. We have a special exhibition um, called Mon Maroc, My India, so in the pavilion, so please have a look at that. Beyond being a museum, we have a research library. I do recognize some of you because you've done research at the library. It's for writers and uh, academics. We have books in English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, little in Arabic, mostly about the culture and history of uh, uh, North Africa, but especially Morocco. And, um, but beyond being a museum and a, and a, uh, a, a library, we're a community center. We offer classes in uh, literacy in Arabic to women who live in the Benidorm part of the Medina of Tanger and the Medina. And now we've been doing that almost 20 years. And we have just begun to offer English language scholarships to young people from the Homa, uh, thanks to our collaboration with the American Language Center of Tangier. So high school students get four-year scholarships to study English here and then after the first year at the American Language Center. Uh, and as you are here tonight, we're a cultural center and a, a performance center. We will have a very exciting calendar of concerts and events in Ramadan that we post on our Facebook page. Uh, for those of you who like India and Bollywood, we'll be showing four Bollywood films at Silmarif during Ramadan for free, Balesh, for free. So please tell your friends, but we'll put them on the Facebook page and the Cinematheque page. And then we'll have some cons two concerts here 
another book talk, uh, two, and two other book signings as well in Ramadan. So please come back. Of course, not this time in Ramadan. 10 o'clock, 10.30, so so anyway, I want to introduce a friend and a colleague, Eric Calderwood, um, who's a professor at University of Champaign, Illinois, uh, who's written a very exciting book. And con first, congratulations, Mabruk, because it's a new book. It just was published. And it was published by Harvard University Press. That's impressive. Um, Eric's going to talk. and. Uh, Many of you know him from, uh, he's a Tanjawi, he's Mishi Tanjawi, I'm sorry, Ana Asaf, who is Tetuani Mishi Tanjawi, who is Tetuani Mia Filmia, Daif Dilna, he's our guest, but he's not a Tanjawi, he's a Tetuani. And he'll be giving a talk in Tetuan that he will tell you about, Yumel Hemstashor May, Bil Espanol. He'll be giving a talk in Spanish about the book in Tetuan which is really his Homa is Tetuan, it's not Benita. So over to you, Eric. Thank you very much. All right, first of all, can everyone hear me? All right, I think I, I'm, I could speak loudly, but uh, John, am I correct that I should speak in this for the podcast? Okay, so I'll use the, I'll use the microphone. Uh, first of all, I wanna thank all of you for coming. Uh, it's just a tremendous pleasure and an honor to be here to present the book here at Talim. Uh, I, you know, to start off, I wanted to say something about the conventions of my discipline. In the humanities, we tend to publish books as single authors, which is the professional convention, but it's also a fiction. It's a, a fiction that conceals all of the communal work that goes into the making of any book. Um, you know, the work that we do as scholars, it depends so much on the labor, the work, the love of the people who surround us. Uh, for that reason, I, you know, I, I feel obliged to start tonight by thanking some of the people who have helped me write this book, some of whom are here today. Uh, I want to start off by thanking John Davison and really the entire staff at Talim, which has been a second home for me since my days uh, as a graduate student at Harvard. Uh, it's you know, a very special uh, feeling to be back here, so thank you uh, for making this such a wonderful and vibrant center, John. Um, I also want to say, and you know, I think that this is both in the spirit of honesty and I think really something important about how this work has happened. Um, it just really would not have been possible to write this book without the extensive support and collaboration of Moroccan scholars. Uh, and particularly Moroccan scholars in Tetuan, also in Tangier, but particularly in Tetuan. Um, I want to single out three in particular who are especially helpful, though if you're interested in the very long complete list you can, you can look at the acknowledgements. Those three would be uh, Jafar bin al-Hajj Sulami, uh, Mohammed bin Aboud, Mohammed bin Aboud, and Hasna Daoud. Um, all three of them, uh, really, they spent countless hours with me responding to my questions, my pesky questions about Tetuani and Moroccan history. They introduced me to a lot of the texts that appear in this book. Uh, and so, it, you know, in, in, in many ways, material and intellectual, this book could not have happened without them. And I just want to express my profound gratitude. So I like to think of this book as a kind of love letter to Morocco, uh, especially to Tetuan. I also like to think of it as a testament uh, to all that I've learned from being here. And finally, I think it's a testament to what happens when you go looking for one thing and you end up finding something else. Uh, the reason I say that is because this book actually started out as something very different than what it ended up being. Uh, it started out as a dissertation project on Al-Andalus that is on medieval Muslim Iberia. 
In 2007, I came here to Morocco to start working on, on that project, uh, eventually landing in Tetuan, as John said. And uh, you know, more than a decade later, it turns out that I've emerged with a book about modern Spanish-Moroccan relations, and in particular about the political uses of El Andalus in Spanish and Moroccan culture. So in other words, I've made the jump from the medieval to the modern and from El Andalus to the cultural afterlife of El Andalus. Uh, I'd like to say something about how that transformation happened. Um, so during my first year in Morocco, as I was suggested, suggesting, I was introduced to several Moroccan texts and several Moroccan authors who just simply were not on the map of the Arabic literary education that I'd received in the United States. Um, the reasons for this are complex. We can talk about them in the Q&A. Uh, but to put it very bluntly, with very few exceptions, Arabists in Europe and the United States completely ignore Moroccan literature written in Arabic between roughly the 16th century and the 1950s. There's just a huge hole in uh, the, the knowledge. You know, so this, it has something to do with the historical construction of the field of Arabic studies. And uh, if you, if you want to hear more about that, I can go into it. But the point I'm trying to draw on is that conducting research outside the United States, you know, one of its benefits, it's not just that you meet new people or you learn new facts, but you actually learn new ways of knowing, new ways of structuring uh, the world around you. There's a kind of epistemic growth that goes along with the linguistic growth. What we study when we study Moroccan literature or Arabic literature or Moroccan history actually bears fairly little resemblance to what people study under those same headings here in Morocco. And that difference can be really, uh, really instructive. Uh, so part of the project's shift in focus precisely had to do with that, that thing, that discovery that there was this whole long tradition of Moroccan Arabic literature that was completely unfamiliar to me. And, uh, and that really pretty much nothing was written about it in English. Um, I mean this also to be an endorsement for the Fulbrighters who are here, both past and present, and for the other American scholars doing research here. Uh, you know, and this is really just a kind of autobiographical reflection, but I think that when you work in Morocco, really any new cultural context, but I, I want to say this particularly about Morocco, it really helps you to identify and question the assumptions that have structured your education and really the blind spots that have structured your education. So uh, I mean that to be a huge endorsement for the people who are, who are doing work here uh, from all over. Another thing that happened during that first year in Morocco, and, and this is gonna start taking me to what the thesis of the book is, I started hearing this idea. It was an idea that I became fascinated with because it was an idea that I heard everywhere. And once I say it, I'm, I imagine that you guys have heard this idea as well. It's an idea that was popping up in the lectures I was attending, the books I was reading, even in casual conversations with Moroccan friends and colleagues. What was that idea? The idea was pretty much this. It was that the culture of El Andalus did not disappear in 1492 with the conquest of Granada. It merely migrated from the Iberian Peninsula to Morocco, where it has continued to thrive until the present day. So in other words, this is the idea that modern Moroccan culture descends directly, has this direct link to medieval El Andalus. In the book, I call this idea uh, the Andalus-centric narrative of Moroccan history. So this idea is really at the center of the book. And in that first year when I started to hear it, you know, at first I kind of took it for granted because it, 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 it makes a sort of sense in ways that will become apparent in this talk. But I also started to ask myself questions about it. Um, 
what exactly did it mean? What does it mean when Moroccans claim descent from Al-Andalus? And when did they start talking about their Andalusi roots in those terms? Uh, was I, when I was hearing this idea, was I seeing a kind of process of cultural continuity that was uh, uh, connected in a direct chain back to the 15th century? Or was I maybe instead seeing a much more recent cultural phenomenon? So that, that, was, that was the question. And I, you know, I want to say that this particular story that, I'm, uh, that I started to investigate, this idea about where Moroccan culture comes from and its relationship to Al-Andalus, it's an idea that carries a lot of weight, a lot of power in contemporary Morocco, in historiography, in literature, in tourism, in political discourse. You don't have to take my word for it, though. I've decided to give you a few examples so you don't think that I'm just making up something that I heard casually, anecdotally, on the streets of Tetuan. Um, first of all, you know, I, I, w I want to say that several prominent Moroccan historians have claimed that Al-Andalus is a, a central component of Moroccan national identity. Uh, along these lines, the historian Mohamed Benaboud, whom I mentioned earlier, has written, the footprints of Al-Andalus in Morocco remain deeply rooted, and they constitute an integral part of the Moroccan sociocultural fabric. And then Benaboud goes on to claim that Moroccan identity, quote, would not be comprehensible without the Andalusi heritage. Um, I could give, my book is actually just full, uh, it's just a kind of gallery of quotes along these lines, but I'm, I'm gonna give one more, just so you know, I'm, I'm not cherry picking from Tetuan. I decided to pick a, a quote from somewhere else. So this one comes from Mohammed bin Sharifa, who was the director of the uh, Moroccan National Library in the 1990s. And he says, the heritage of Al-Andalus is still preserved and uninterrupted in Morocco. We see it in architecture, music, cuisine, and other refinements of civilization. All right, so we have, we have two examples of a kind of similar theme here. But this insistence on the continuity between Al-Andalus and Morocco is really not uh, kind of limited to the scholarly world, to academic writings. It's also a major part of contemporary Moroccan artistic production. Uh, for example, some of Morocco's most uh, distinguished novelists and poets, such as Bin Salem Hamish and Mohamed al-Sabah, have written important works with Andalusi themes. Um, it's also, you know, Andalusi music is often called Morocco's national music, and as I'm sure anyone who spent any time here knows that it's very often featured on television, weddings, and official, official functions. Al-Andalus is also one of the drivers behind the Moroccan tourism industry, which is the country's second largest source of income. And in fact, since 1992, uh, the centenary of the fall of, of Granada, Spain and Morocco have collaborated on a number of tourism initiatives uh, that, that kind of seek to promote the country's shared Andalusi heritage. I've put some images of some of them up there, such as Marruecos y España, una historia común, a common history. Al-Andalus is not just big business in Morocco, though. It's actually, it's kind of become a matter of national doctrine. Uh, even the preamble to the most recent Moroccan constitution calls Al-Andalus a tributary of Moroccan national identity. And in so doing, this is in the second paragraph of the preamble to the constitution, and in so doing reaffirms this idea that, that Moroccan culture comes from Al-Andalus. So this is not just an idea that I, that I heard in a cafe in Tetuan, though I did hear it in many cafes in Tetuan, and, and it's an idea that I've been sitting with for 10 years and trying to figure out when did people start talking in this particular way, where, where did this come from? So my book, Colonial Al-Andalus, it argues that Morocco's Andalusi identity is in fact not a medieval legacy, 
but is instead a modern invention that emerged from the colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco in the 19th and 20th centuries. Let me say very briefly, and let me kind of draw out in broad strokes how this, this process happened. It's a process that really dates back to the War of 1859 to 1860, uh, the war that marks the beginning of Spanish colonialism in Morocco. And during that war, Spanish writers began to revive the memory of El Andalus and to celebrate in order to assert the historical proximity between Spain and Morocco and also to justify Spain's colonial presence in Morocco. The logic here wasn't, was Spain wasn't colonizing, it was simply returning to Morocco, which had always been Spanish. This strategic use of Spain's Muslim past actually became a real central pillar of Spanish colonial discourse in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it was especially important during the Spanish Civil War uh, when Franco and his allies used the memory of Al-Andalus as a rhetorical tool to recruit approximately 80,000 Moroccan soldiers who fought in uh, the rebel army. But it didn't stop there. To, to ensure support for the rebel cause, Franco also granted unprecedented freedoms to the Moroccan nationalist movement, such as the legalization of some of Morocco's first nationalist parties, and also the creation of an Arabic language nationalist press. Now this is the moment in which Spanish colonialism kind of starts to become the victim of its own success. Because uh, from these key incubators of Moroccan nationalist culture that were forged in the opening months of the Spanish Civil War, there began to emerge a call for the creation and celebration of a Moroccan national identity, one that was grounded in the country's Andalusian heritage. And many of the people who led this charge, who led this call, were in fact scholars and politicians who had come up through the Spanish colonial education system and had worked for the colonial research institutions created under Franco. Many of them also went on to become really prominent figures in post-independence Morocco. So, so what am I saying? I'm saying that the celebration of Morocco's Andalusi heritage, which had initially served as a justification for Spanish colonialism, actually galvanized the Moroccan national culture that would supplant colonial rule. A Spanish way of talking about Morocco became a Moroccan way of talking about Morocco. So this is the moment in the talk in which I introduce the caveats, because uh, this is usually the part, if the questions stop there, that when people furiously throw up their hands. So I should clarify a few things. I, I'm not uh, saying that there is not a long history of human and material exchange between the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa. And I'm also not denying the well-documented fact that tens of thousands of Andalusians migrated from the Iberian Peninsula to North Africa from the end of the 15th century to the beginning of the 17th century, and that that, in fact, had a, a profound impact on social and cultural life in Morocco. I'm saying something different. What I'm saying is that the way that Moroccans wrote and talked about Al-Andalus changed as a result of Spanish colonialism in Morocco. It's not that Spanish colonialism invented El Andalus. What it did was inaugurate a kind of new narrative about how Morocco became Andalusi and how that Andalusiness manifests in the modern era. This particular colonial narrative that I'm going to be talking about is one that stresses the migration of the people and cultures of El Andalus from the Iberian Peninsula to Morocco. And it also stresses a specific repertoire of cultural practices in which Morocco's Andalusi heritage supposedly resides. 
Those practices include things like music and architecture, but they also extend to other domains of social life, be it cuisine, uh, dialect, even religion. Uh, I can talk more about that as well, the idea of, of Moroccan Islam and its relationship to colonialism. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, this kind of network of Spanish colonial ideas about Morocco's Andalusi heritage migrated into Moroccan culture and specifically into the institutions of post-independence Morocco, specifically the Moroccan uh, uh, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Culture, Moroccan National Library. I'll give some examples later, later in the talk. And, and there they kind of fossilized into this unquestioned truth. Today, though, this, this narrative, this particular narrative, which I say has colonial roots, has shed any association with colonial ideology. An idea that, was, that originated as a justification for colonialism has sort of taken on a life of its own as a centerpiece of Moroccan national culture and national identity. So in what remains of this talk, I won't have time to trace each step in what is really a complex cultural relay between Spanish colonial culture and Moroccan national culture. And uh, besides, I want there to be some surprises for those of you who decide to read the book, uh, which, which, which I, I hope you will. Um, I would, however, like to offer you a snapshot of Spanish colonial culture and a few thoughts about how that culture lives on in post-independence Morocco. So this is kind of maybe one, one strand of the book, but there are a few different strands that the book follows. The snapshot is actually an archival photograph that uh, I found in a box, an unmarked box of miscellany in the Spanish National Library. The photograph shows a scene in Tetuan's School of Indigenous Arts, which was founded by the Spanish to promote and protect Moroccan arts. What we're seeing here is a visit that Franco's brother-in-law, Ramon Serrano Sunier, made to the School of Indigenous Arts in 1938, in the throes of the Spanish Civil War. In the photograph, as you can see, Serrano Sunier is entering a carpentry workshop while several young Moroccan apprentices greet him with a fascist salute. And just next to Serrano Sunier is standing uh, an artist named Mariano Bertucci, who served as the director of that school from 1930 to 1955. And in that role, he became the Spanish protectorate's primary spokesperson for Moroccan art. And I'll come back to him in a moment. I've chosen to show this photograph for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, I think it il illustrates one of my book's main claims. So my book is trying to respond to certain ideas in Spanish historiography and certain ideas in Moroccan historiography. This is the Spanish historiography part. Uh, so any Hispanists out there can, can prepare their, their furious rejoinders. Um, I, I believe that this photograph and this book challenges some really common ideas about modern Spanish history. Uh, in the scholarship on modern Spain, there's been a tendency to treat the Spanish Civil War as a rupture that separates two irreconcilable views of Spain. On the one hand, you have the Republicans who fight for a pluralistic, multilingual, multicultural Spain that is tolerant of difference. And on the other hand, you have the Franquists who fight for a monolingual, Catholic, uh, and imperial Spain. Within this bifurcated view, the modern celebration of El Andalus has almost exclusively been associated with the Republican cause and more broadly with kind of liberal or progressive understandings of Spanish history and Spanish culture. In contrast, I'm trying to argue in this book that the celebration of El Andalus was a very significant part of Francoist culture, uh, particularly in Morocco. 
Spanish colonial writers of all ideological stripes justified Spain's role as a colonizer in Morocco by celebrating the Andalusi heritage and also by emphasizing the cultural, historical, and even racial proximity between Spain and Morocco. In fact, the idea that Spain is a racial alloy, a mixture of Europe and Africa, was particularly important for the Francoists. So this, this is a, uh, an idea, I think, that, that really challenges a, a notion of what Francoist culture looks like. And I'm also trying to say that the modern memory of Al-Andalus is inseparable from the legacy of colonialism, yes, but also inseparable from the legacy of Francoism, which is a bit more surprising. I've also chosen this photograph because I want to introduce another idea that runs through the book. Uh, so in the book, as I say, I, I try to identify a number of strands or narratives or ideas that first emerged under the auspices of Spanish colonialism and then eventually migrated into, into Moroccan culture. One of these ideas, one of the central ones, is the idea of the cultural continuity between Granada and Tetuan. And more broadly, the idea that the music and arts of Granada live on in the modern urban centers of Morocco, especially Tetuan, Fez, and Rabat. This idea that kind of Muslim Granada lives on through its arts and music in modern Morocco. So it turns out this guy, Mariano Bertucci, the guy in the, in the stiff suit uh, standing next to Serrano Sunier, was one of the major proponents of this idea, and he, he turned it into the school's guiding principle, the guiding principle for the School of Indigenous Arts. To give some background, I should mention that, uh, that Bertucci himself was from Granada, and he grew up at the foothills of the Alhambra. And in fact, he actually learned how to paint in the Alhambra. As a young boy, he was brought by his painting teacher to uh, paint outdoor scenes in the Alhambra. He actually painted this when he was 14, which is pretty, uh, pretty astonishing. And the reason that I bring this up is that, you know, when Bertucci, he located permanently to Morocco in 1918, and from then until his death in 1955, he had a hand in almost every, all of the visual representations of the Spanish protectorate that circulated both in Morocco, Spain, and further abroad. He saw the Alhambra as the inspiration, the source, and the model for Moroccan art and aesthetics. And my book tries to show several examples of how the School of Indigenous Arts it itself became, under his leadership, a, a kind of showcase for celebrating the link between Granada and Tetuan. For the sake of time, I'm just going to give one example, although I have, I have many in the book. And this particular example comes from one of the many uh, journalistic accounts written by Spanish writers who go to Tetuan and interview Bertucci. And this, this quote comes from a report that was published in a Madrid newspaper in 1946. It says, quote, perhaps that is why Bertucci has figured out how to return to that artisanal art its hidden meaning, because he too is Granadan. For that reason, through his work and his person, he links together from the School of Indigenous Arts, space and time on the shores of the Straits, joining Andalusia with Morocco and the centuries of Moorish Spain with those of the modern protectorate. This quote has several elements that are important for understanding Spanish colonial culture and also the long shadow that that culture casts over contemporary Morocco. First of all, the quote asserts that both Bertucci and the arts that he teaches come from the same place, Granada. Second, it casts Bertucci as a kind of human bridge between past and present, Granada and Tetuan. And third, it imagines Tetuan as a place where space and time collapse 
and where medieval Al-Andalus and modern Morocco converge and become one. And this is, this is a kind of narrative ploy that you'll see that's particularly popular in tourism uh, representations now of Tetuan, such as uh, the ones that UNESCO has published. So why should you care about Bertucci and his career? I'm giving you the, why did I pick this guy in particular about Bertucci? Um, well, first of all, you know, the school that he founded continues to be one of the major centers for teaching arts and crafts in, in modern Morocco. So there's a very significant institutional legacy to think about. But more importantly, I, I, what I'm arguing is that Bertucci's ideas about the Grenadan roots of Moroccan art have helped shape debates about Moroccan art in the ensuing, uh, in the ensuing debate, uh, decades. In particular, this continuity between Grenada and Tetuan has become a very familiar theme in scholarly and tourist representations of Grenada. Take, just, take, just to take one example, look at this recent description of Tetuan from the distinguished historian Mohamed al-Sharif. He says, the city, Tetuan, still preserves Andalusi architecture inside its walls, and Tetuan's residents still preserve the dialect, music, fashion, and traditional crafts of Al-Andalus. Tetuan truly resembles to a great extent Granada, with its narrow streets and the manner of its buildings. So my book argues that this particular way of describing Morocco's Andalusi heritage a heritage embodied in the continuity with Granada and the preservation of a specific repertoire of cultural practices, that this idea was not present in pre-colonial Moroccan culture. And that it emerged, in fact, as a consequence of the colonial encounter between Spain and Morocco. So that's the kind of historical shift that I'm trying to show. Up until now, my examples in this talk have all centered on Tetuan. And Tet Tetuan really is the heart of this book. But I, I also firmly believe that the story that the book is trying to tell is one that is very important for understanding the culture that emerged in other parts of Morocco as well, including in the former French zone. So I'd like to conclude with uh, just three images that gesture toward this idea, this idea that this Tetuan story is actually a Moroccan story. Um, I won't have time to discuss each of these images in detail, but I want to put them out share a few ideas, and then maybe we can respond to them together in the Q&A. Has anyone seen this one before? Okay, so this, this first image is the cover of Tetuan, which was the first academic journal, Arabic language academic journal, published in Morocco. Uh, the first issue, which is shown here, was published in 1956 uh, by the Moroccan Ministry of Education, so the year of independence. The editorial board, uh, was made up almost exclusively, with the exception of Mohamed al-Fassi, was made up almost exclusively of Moroccan scholars who had come of age in, under Spanish colonialism and had worked significantly for many of the Francoist colonial research institutions in Morocco, such as the General Franco Institute and the Moulay al-Hassan Institute. I should also mention, just to give a kind of tangier side note, that one of the editorial directors was also um, Abdullah Ghanoun, who has, a, who has a, a foundation here, and he was the person who was the governor who oversaw the end of the international system here in Tangier. So in the book, I give a lot of information about this journal and its role in the kind of consolidation of a Moroccan academic discourse about Al-Andalus. But for now, I just want to draw attention to the journal's cover, uh, which was designed by an artist named Fauzi. Uh, this artist, Fauzi, he taught at Tetuan's uh, School of Fine Arts, uh, which is a school that was founded by Mariano Bertucci in 1945, the first school of its kind in Morocco. Does anyone, have you guys noticed the text that runs across the top of the journal here? 
that's right. There, there is, there is no victor uh, but God. So this is the, this is the motto of Nasrid, uh, of Nasrid Granada. This is the motto of the last Muslim dynasty of Granada, and it's the same motto actually that covers the walls of the Alhambra in Granada. I, I just want to draw out this kind of juxtaposition between this appropriation of a Granadan motto that uh, then appears on the cover of each of the issues, put in juxtaposition with Tetuan, as if, which is both the name of the city and the name of the journal, as if that journal and that city were the kind of natural inheritor of the Granadan uh, legacy that, it, that, it, that it's going to talk about. You know, I bring up this example because it shows what I think an early attempt to articulate in Arabic and for a Moroccan audience an idea about Morocco's Andalusian heritage, this idea of the Grenadian continuity that first served as a justification for colonialism. But I should also say that it's not at all an isolated case. Uh, in the decades since independence, in fact, the model of Muslim Grenada in some ways has also become a kind of Moroccan uh, motto. And it's been incorporated into many important Moroccan uh, monuments, thus establishing a kind of architectural and cultural link between Granada and post-independence Morocco. Uh, perhaps the most famous example would be the mausoleum for Muhammad V in Rabat, um, which, as you'll see in, in the inset photo on the right here, uh, has walls that are all adorned with this same motto, there's no victor but God, the, the, the motto of, of Muslim Granada. And in fact, Hassan II, who commissioned this mausoleum, actually asked the architect who designed it to travel to Spain, and the architect has written about this, to visit the, the monuments of Al-Andalus and to incorporate explicit references to them in the mausoleum uh, for his father. So, you know, more broadly, Hassan II was a kind of major patron for what have no, become, become to be known Andalusi arts here in Morocco. That uh, maybe this mausoleum is the most uh, the most impactful example, but he also sponsored several academic conferences about Al-Andalus, and also helped sponsor the first recording of the twelve nubas that make up the Moroccan Andalusi music repertoire. So he was really able. Hassan II was really able to incorporate this colonial narrative of, of Al-Andalus into the official discourse of the Alawi dynasty. And this is a process that's continued to some extent under Muhammad VI. I can talk a bit more about that in, in the Q&A. I'd like to end, though, on a much more kind of less monumental note, one that I think suggests the long reach of colonial Al-Andalus, but also the vexed place that colonial Al-Andalus occupies in public memory. Uh, does anyone recognize this building? It's in, it's in Tangier. This is, the, uh, this is the courtyard of Pension Palace, a uh, Pension Palace, which is a hotel located just outside the Petit Soko. Uh, the building in which Pension Palace sits is, actually dates back to the 18th century, and it once served as the Spanish legation of Tangier. Uh, in, the first, in the second decade of the 20th century, uh, the, the, the original Spanish legation was transformed in this, into the Spanish post and telegraph office. And for that, they built this courtyard, which is, as you might note, an imitation of the courtyard of the Court of the Lions in the Alhambra. And uh, to make sure that we did not miss the references, it also, on all of the capitals going around the courtyard, it's a little difficult to see in the picture, it has that same Nazareth motto, there is no victor but God the same motto that appears on the walls of the Alhambra, on the cover of the journal Tetuan, and on the walls of Mohammed V's mausoleum in Rabat. I'm gonna end here with this image of a Tangier hotel in a historic building that's seen better days. 
on a very basic level, you know, I, I think that this, that this building with its miniature Alhambra courtyard illustrates the oblivion that now surrounds the legacy of Spanish colonialism, a legacy that I think is both pervasive and widely forgotten. On a very basic level, my book is, is thus trying to recover and reconsider some forgotten figures and some forgotten moments from modern Moroccan history. It's also trying to reimagine the story of modern Moroccan culture from a northern perspective, based in Tetuan, Tangier, and Chefchaouen, rather than in Fez, Rabat, and Casablanca. There are many reasons why this northern-oriented version of Moroccan history is not by any means the dominant version of Moroccan history, and we can talk about them. But I think that buildings like Tangier's Pension Palace are both symbols of what Moroccan culture has become and also reminders of the people and places that have been forgotten along the way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghrib and Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.